Hey there, I don't really think there's anything more complex than being a leader of people. If you're listening to this podcast and you manage a team or you have leaders of people working in your organization below you or you're at the C-suite, it might be time that you want to pop on over to mocarrick.com and learn about the Leading People program. This is my signature three-month peer cohort-based program where I offer all of the tools that human beings that are leading people need in order to activate the talents of their people for success without having to be a superhero. The doors are opening on September 16th and you're not going to want to miss it. Classes start October 24th and I'd love to have you or your people in there. Check it out. Today's workplaces are increasingly toxic. It can feel like every semblance of humanity has been squeezed out by outdated rules. On Let's Make Work Human, we believe that companies can meet their mission and make a profit without squeezing the life out of people. How do leaders who care create unbreakable workplace cultures brimming with belonging, transparency, joy, flexibility, purpose, care, and results? This show has the answers. Walking the path of true people leadership requires unbreakable connections and real partnerships that debunk and demolish old habits. I'm May Lone Rats. I go by May. I'm a millennial with a partner named Sam and a toddler named Crosley. I'm a determined optimist. I believe in the power of community and rest. I'm a cis Chinese mixed race woman. I was grown in the Mountain West. I'm an award-winning artist, a mother, a coach, and a DEIJ facilitator. I co-host the show with my friend, award-winning entrepreneur, best-selling author, baby boomer, culture expert, and beekeeper, Mo Carrick. Together, we're going to take a radical approach to liberating working mothers, abolishing toxic workplace cultures, and so much more. Join us for an irreverent and honest look at what it takes to make every workplace fit for human beings who work there. We're on a mission to restore humanity to work one magnificent people leader at a time. This show will warm your heart, challenge your thinking, and leave you laughing out loud. Trevor Reagan, welcome. Thank you. I'm super excited about this. Oh, I'm so happy to have you here. And um, we were just chatting as we were warming up that we were supposed to talk two years ago before the global pandemic <laughs> hit. And um, I've just been watching you with everything you're doing in the Learner Lab for quite some time and hearing great things from our mutual acquaintance, May Rats. And it's just really exciting to be here with you. So um, for our listeners, just if you would, I'm super curious about, you know, you're all about learning as a skill, right? right? Learning as a skill. And I'm all about workplaces that are good for people. <laughs> yeah. You know, and one of the things I'm <laughs> seeing right now is that workplaces in the sort of recovery from COVID time are learning more than they have learned in a long time about mm -hmm. how to be good for people. And so tell me a little bit of like, what are you sitting in front of right now? Just even personally, like for your own learning, what are you learning right now? So one of the big upgrades that we made in our message, maybe about eight months ago was, okay, like I'm going to go do a workshop with a company. We're going to talk for six hours. And the goal of a workshop is we get better at learning. Okay, we do a good job of presenting 
good science and, and help people understand why learning matters. And then sort of that punchline is learning is a skill, which means to get good at it, you just have to do it more. And that's kind of where the workshop used to leave off. It's just like, hey, please just go learn stuff, learn more stuff. And if you do that, <laughs> we did our job. And over the last eight months, we've been trying to experiment with like making that more concrete and tangible. And so I've been working with uh, the LSU volleyball team, and they were the first to kind of try this out, which was every two weeks, the whole team meets now, and they call it sort of a declaration day, which is like, okay, every coach and player says out loud, this is the skill that I'm trying to get a little bit better at for the next couple of weeks. Just by saying that out loud and putting a schedule on it, they're thinking about learning more. And so I'm trying to do the same thing, to be honest, um, like along with them every couple of weeks, I've been really trying to dig in on what is a concrete skill that I want to get a little bit better at. I'm not going to master it in two weeks, of course not, but I can learn enough to be dangerous. And so maybe this isn't the best example for people listening, but you can see like the studio behind me. So a month ago. I wanted to learn like better studio lighting and better studio design. And then I spent a couple of weeks learning about like different audio setups. And so I've been really trying to get more learning happening by shrinking down the amount of time I spend on a thing to two weeks. And it's been really fun for me. Um, and we're getting some good feedback from different groups that are kind of using that approach. Um, so yeah, that's, I'm learning all sorts of stuff. I, after this interview, I have a session with, um, Matthew Dix, who's one of the best storytellers in the world. And my next two week mission is to get really good at using better storytelling tactics and finding ways to implement those into my workshops and videos. And so it's been kind of a really, really interesting few months focusing on like actual skills and trying to like learn enough to be dangerous in a short it. amount of time. I love it. So you're kind of doing like what, what I've heard clients describe as like a scrum approach, right? Like you're saying, what are we, what's the, what's right in front of you that you can make some progress on and, and, you know, like you said, learn enough to be dangerous or learn enough to really be stretching, which is where you're going to be really learning more. hundred percent. And so like the logic, it's not even logic. It's the science says when we learn something, not only like if we're going to practice something, we're going to get better at it because it's a skill, but the machinery in our brain that controls learning is sort of plastic, which means the more you use that machinery, like you get better at learning itself. And so I think that's one of the cool parts about learning as a topic is one, it's really important to be good at. Two, it's beneficial in any situation. Like if you're good at learning, that's useful in pretty much any scenario. And then it is a skill. So like we can get better at learning and you do that by learning. And so not only are you getting better at learning when you do this, but you're acquiring new skills. And I think you nailed it. It's like, there are so many skills within our grasp and just understanding that those skills are there and that we can build them is like a huge piece that can help everybody listening become a better learner. It's just understanding we can do that. And there is a lifetime of skills that could help us all be better at what we do. Oh my gosh, I love that. And I'm reminded with your, one of the learning examples you used about what you're working on right now was about just your studio like mm -hmm. a studio setup. And I'm struck because you put something out on Instagram or something about you had a new camera. And mm -hmm. I looked at your picture and I was like, it looks so good. And even when, when you came on today, I'm like, wow, look <laughs> at how good his background looks and his lighting and everything. And I yeah. asked, I've asked you like, what is this new thing uh -huh. that you're using? Um, and so I'm noticing that like when someone is learning 
and they're putting themselves out there, it is attractive from a vulnerability perspective because I can recognize mm -hmm. what you're learning in me and be like, oh, wow, he's made his on this right. one example, like he's made improvement on there. And maybe that's available to me if I if I want to make my studio better. And and what I encourage people to understand with an example like that is so maybe sometime when I'm doing an interview like this or doing a workshop, see the studio and they're like, oh, that's amazing. I could never do that. It's like, no, what you need to understand is that's the byproduct of a two or three week like sprint. And there was a lot of frustration and I had to buy things and return things. And I was like super lost and confused. So like what we see on Instagram, what we see on Twitter and this goes for like any skill is usually like, it's easy to forget that there's a lot of behind the scenes time and energy that went into getting good at that thing. And it's so important for us to understand that because sometimes we see someone who's good at something and we assume like, oh, they're like born with this or they're just naturally good at this. And more times than not, there's just a bunch of time and energy that went into this thing. And it's good to remember that as we spend time on Instagram and Twitter. Well, totally, <laughs> absolutely. And it, it ties to this idea of like the curated image of ourselves, you know, mm -hmm. versus the authentic image of ourselves, like when we're in the learning process. So, okay, we jumped into the work already, but I want to back <laughs> it up a little bit because I, I think that, um, you, you know, the work you're doing is so fast fascinating and we're going to definitely dig in deep but tell me a little bit tell us a little bit about you know your life like what's what's big in your life right now personally that is happening you know in this we're coming out of covid it's august mm -hmm. today 2022 what is happening in your life that's <laughs> really fun so during like the covid years my girlfriend and i we spent a lot of time thinking about like what do we actually want uh, we're lucky that we both have remote work and we, we met in Des Moines and after year one of COVID, we moved to DC. We're like, this, this could be a fun move for us. A lot of our friends are out there and let's go try it out. And we got out there for four months and hated it. And what I'm really proud of and what's fun is we were able to have a conversation and decide to move back to Des Moines and we got like a bigger house with more room and a yard for the dogs. And there's a place for her and I each to work. We're talking a lot about my studio. It's like, I can only have this if we live in Des Moines. And so what's really fun now is we've had the opportunity to run some experiments and some worked and some didn't, um, but to be where we are now with like a really cool workplace or workspace, I'm having a blast with it. And, and it's just so fun to like, all right, I'm going to turn this room into like my perfect studio. And I've been having a ton of fun with that. I love it. I love it. So not, not having to be in the closet that you might've had to be in DC yeah. <laughs> when you yeah. were there. Right. And picking, <laughs> yeah. Where, yeah. And living where you want to live and you mm -hmm. both grew up there. Right. So I grew up in Wyoming. Oh, um, that's right. That's how you yeah. know me. That's how I know me. We went to school together. Uh, Emily's actually from Missouri. So from different places, met in Des Moines. And then it's actually like a, a cool little city and we've been having a blast. Des Moines is a cool little city. I was just mm -hmm. there last year. My son actually moved there for a short period of time and I got to visit him. And um, it is a really, really cool city. Good for mm -hmm. you for choosing the place that you want to be, you know, and, and having mm -hmm. some fun with it in the new mm -hmm. in the new house, in the new space. I love it. So you're working with a variety of clients going back into jumping in the work. I know you work with a lot of athletic teams. You work with um, a variety of institutions from colleges and universities to corporations at Fortune 100, et cetera. And I'm curious, Trevor, because you've been at this for a while. 
what patterns or observations are you seeing out there about how in particular i'm interested in this how do lead because i have two questions related to this the first one is for mm -hmm. leaders how do you think leaders are learning about leadership mm -hmm. i think that there's two two things happening one is it seems as though there's more of a hunger for figuring out better ways to do stuff. And I love that. It's like, I think we're starting to recognize it's like, look, we need to be better at how we support our people. We need to create a better learning environment. We need to get better at feedback. Like there's a lot of good science out there that can like shine a light on better ways to do stuff. And it seems like groups are more hungry to find that. I guess sort of the slippery slope of this, and I don't know if you see this as well, but sometimes, and and I honestly, I was guilty of this for like five years when I first started is you get excited about learning and you realize there's so many tools and ideas out there and it becomes sort of like the flavor of the week. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, here's something cool. Let's talk about that and show a PowerPoint and then move on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Just in the conversations I've had with some groups, it's like that I don't think is the most effective way to improve an environment. Sometimes it just turns off the employees of like, look, yeah, they're talking about this particular topic right now, but we know that it's going to be different in a week and different in a week and different in a week. And so I've seen a little bit of that, but the groups that I think are doing it the best are like moving slow and looking at one or two big things that they think matter and then spending a lot of time on those and going like more in depth and really trying to apply it properly versus like moving on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. I think, I know I just talked about like learning in small chunks of time. Yeah. That's like developing skills. But what we're talking about here is like, what are things we're trying to implement within the environment, within the group? That I think takes much longer than two weeks and it should take longer than two weeks. Yeah, I think sometimes when we become too hungry to grow, we get into this hamster wheel where we're really not understanding the things we're talking about. We can we can explain it or show you a video about it, but it's not actually being implemented. And so that's that's another pattern I see sometimes. You know, that's really interesting because I'm noticing it too, like what you're describing. And, and it reminds me, it makes me think about this idea that learning is what happens inside of us not the knowledge we can observe and attain, mm -hmm. you know, like, and that's where I think we talk often in our signature program, the leading people program about how there's like, I don't know, 3,500 leadership books that come into the market, <laughs> you know, every year, including yeah. two of mine. <laughs> <Right>? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and if, you know, if the answer to learning to be a good leader was available in a book, then right. it would have already been written. So what you're saying is really interesting to me around the long haul game about what am I willing to sustain? That's different mm -hmm. than the flavor of the month or the new book that I read for leaders. It's not about amassing the tool or the knowledge that I can see that's mm -hmm. outside of me. It's actually about integrating how it is I want to be to yeah. move my organization to where I want it to go. That's where the learning is really happening because any mm -hmm. variety of those outside tools can do that but it's that concentrated effort internally. And we, we're seeing that right now, of course, with, with such high awareness in the COVID time for every workplace in the land that, you know, employees are bringing huge discretion to where they want to work. And employers mm -hmm. are being called to really look at the ways that they're toxic and the ways that they're not toxic and to try to actually create a sustainable way to be mm -hmm. a workplace that's good for people. And that's not gonna be found, you know, in just amassing knowledge. It's really gonna be around integrating, yep. you know, the work. 100%. And, and that kind of another aha moment that we've had lately is 
and like the way you frame that was brilliant. It's like, if you look into the science of, of learning and skill development, you see there is a difference between knowledge and skill. So knowledge you can acquire through reading and listening to podcasts, and that's good. It can provide sort of a blueprint, but a skill requires like practice and action to build. And so it's good to understand that those two things work together, but they are very different things. Sometimes if you're like me, I get stuck in the knowledge acquisition side of learning. Like I feel like I'm learning, but I'm just acquiring more knowledge. A challenge that I give myself and, and others, and this kind of goes back to the learning mission is, okay, now that we have some knowledge, let's go like start building some skills. Like let's get good at these things. And you get good at the, these things by using them in the real world. So that's really important. And then the, like I said, the other aha moment that we've had lately is people like me, people in the workplace, we identify like a behavior that we want to see more of. So it's mm -hmm. like, Hey, we want you to be agile or resilient or have grit, whatever it may be. And then we simply tell people to do the thing. <laughs> and mm -hmm. we come up with like 50 different ways of saying that you need to be resilient. And then and then we wonder why, well, how come our people are more resilient? We told them that they needed to be. And what, what we realize, and, and look, these are just traps that I've fallen into myself. This is how I learned these things. Simply talking about a behavior isn't enough to build it. You kind of need to go deeper and look at like, well, if this behavior is a skill and it most likely is, how come our people aren't spending time building the skill? And then more times than not, it's like there's an underlying mindset barrier or there's an environmental behavior. There's something in between our ears and there's something in the environment that's limiting our action and practice towards that behavior. Yes. And so yes. sort of the way we attack it now is if we're trying to change a behavior, we're going to look at the mindset and environment level and spend a ton of time there. And after we have those type of conversations, now we're ready to like build the skill or start to practice the behavior that we think is important. Right, right. I love that. I love that. And and it it strikes me as you're talking, I was thinking about something we talk about in our programs a lot is that leadership is not a hero's journey. Mm -hmm. You know, and we're trying to debunk like what I believe has really happened in the world of organizational life and business, especially, which is that we've built our notions of what good leadership looks like based on mythology that doesn't actually yeah. relate, which is, you know, if you think of Joseph Campbell's traditional you know, hero's journey, right? The protagonist has to leave the tribe to develop or amass the knowledge or experience he has and then comes comes back, right? And, and, it, mm -hmm. and presents his wisdom to the minions who, you know, lap it up. And, and we're like, no, that actually is not the way <laughs> that really good God. leaders, you know, work. And a lot of it is what you're saying, which is like, I actually have to, it's not about me going out and getting the knowledge and bringing it back to the people. It's about me integrating the skills, the behaviors that I want to have to to meaningfully create the culture that I want. I think what you just said is brilliant. And I think this is true for like a lot of different things. A lot of our problems are caused by what we think this process should look mm. like and be like. So mm. you see this with coaches. It's like the speeches we give and the things we say before the game and at halftime, it's sort of like 
what the movie version of what we think a coach should act like, but there's really no science that like supports that. And learning is the same. It's like, oh, we think of learning as like this really messy, really long and difficult journey. It's like, actually, yeah, it takes a, a really long time to, to master something, but you can get pretty good at something in like a week depending on like what the skill is and it doesn't have to be that intense and it doesn't have to take that much time and it doesn't have to be this like huge battle to build a new skill it's like yeah you could do it in small chunks of time so i think that's like a really nice insight of like leadership doesn't have to be the hero's journey it doesn't have to be this like hollywood version of like what we see on the screen more times than not it's usually like the opposite <laughs> and i think that's important for people to understand Absolutely. And so what in your experience, you know, because to do that, we have to be willing to be messy, right? Mm -hmm. if, if, if all we're committing to is like, I'm going to try something new, and I'm going to get good at it enough to do harm, or like, you know, I'm gonna, in a week, I'm going to learn trying something new. What mindsets, and I know you talk a lot about growth mindset, but what do you think is the biggest barrier to people being willing to do it imperfectly as they are learning. I'd say there's three, and this is, this is perfect. Like, I think this is so important for people to understand. It's like you and I can sit here on zoom and uh, like on a podcast and tell people to learn more, but like, we have to acknowledge the things that get in the way. Right. Now there are a lot of barriers for sure, but I would say maybe the most universal that everyone listening might have to deal with. One is we don't think we can learn that particular skill. So that is going to fall under like the, the growth and fixed mindset research. It's, yeah. it, it sounds so simple, but a lot of us sometimes don't believe in our capacity to change. And so like, if that's missing, I'm probably not going to spend much time practicing that skill and I'm probably not going to get better at it. So that would be barrier one is I don't think I can build that particular skill. The second, I think we touched on a bit a second ago, which is my perception of learning or sometimes learning is so daunting in my head that I think that this is going to take a ton of time, but usually that's not the case. But I would argue maybe the biggest barrier and the third one is it doesn't feel good to struggle, but struggle is a necessary piece of growth. And there's no way to skip that, but it doesn't feel good at all. It doesn't feel good to do something new. It doesn't feel good to make mistakes. It doesn't feel good to be stretched out of the comfort zone. And I think that is such an underrated piece of learning that people don't talk about enough. Like we, we go around and tell you, yeah, you need to struggle and make mistakes and get out of your comfort zone. But we don't have the conversation around like, well, how do you get better at dealing with the discomfort itself? Because we're humans and we're kind of wired to avoid those type of feelings. So like, that's an important barrier to acknowledge and an important piece of the learning equation to talk about as well. Well, totally. So how do you do it? Okay. <laughs> so how like, do you deal with the fact that you, when you're learning something new, you can't do it well, that it's, that it's a struggle? Yeah. One is to remind people that the struggle is okay and necessary. So like, yeah. if you can remind someone of the value of the struggle, we're going to be more likely to do it. And like the, the proof of concept there is like exercise is struggling on purpose. Like that's what exercise right. is. Right. And it doesn't necessarily feel good while we do it, but we do it because we understand its value. Like if I'm doing a bunch of push-ups and it starts to kind of like burn and get difficult, it doesn't technically feel good, 
but I'm likely to do it because I know it's like, oh, this is my body getting stronger. And if you use like a similar framework in the learning world, it can help. It's just Mm -hmm. reminding people of the importance and value of the struggle. But I think you're going to get like more of a bang for your buck by having a real conversation about emotions themselves, about Mm -hmm. the tough emotions that are caused when we're stretched out of the comfort zone, the fear, the stress, the anxiety of struggling. And that, how do I, like, how do you explain this topic in two minutes when normally (laughs) it would take 90 minutes? But I think that every person listening to this would probably agree that these tough emotions, they hold a lot of power over our actions. Like when I'm nervous, I don't usually make the best decisions. When I'm nervous, I don't learn the best. When I'm nervous, I don't perform at my best. And so then the question is like, how do you fix that? And this, this will be like a fun little exercise for everyone listening. So there's this researcher named Allison Woodbrooks, and she did sort of a one question survey that they sent out to a bunch of people. And it was about a a similar idea, which is at your workplace, you are presented a challenge that makes you like really nervous. The one question survey says in that moment, what's the best advice to give yourself or someone else? Okay. So they send this out to like lots of people and like for everyone listening, just take three seconds and think about what your answer might be. Cool. So they send this out, they collect all the responses and like, I think it was 91% of the responses say something to the effect of like, calm down, don't worry, don't be afraid. And if you think about it, that's sort of our default approach to talking about these tough emotions you got this. Don't worry. Calm down. Don't be afraid. Like we've all said that we've all heard that that approach makes sense on paper because what we said is like, yeah, these tough emotions hold a lot of power over us. So it makes sense that the optimal strategy would be to get rid of them. Mm. Well, if you look into what the research says, you see that that approach is exactly the wrong approach. Yes. On paper, it makes sense. But when you get into the application that approach actually causes more harm than good. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of studies that back this up, but like an interesting thought experiment that maybe will help us understand what's going on here. And then like, how, how do we use this information would be you and I are about to give a big presentation. Let's just say like a TEDx talk and we're both backstage and we probably really care how this goes. And it's a high pressure situation on paper. We're both feeling the same. Someone comes up to me and goes, you just got to calm down right now. You got to be fearless up there. Like, don't be afraid. Giving me the instructions that most of us are going to hear that most of us would tell ourselves. Okay. Now I step out onto the stage and I'm working under this assumption that I need to be fearless, that I need to calm down. Now I'm on the stage standing in the red circle and I'm freaking out still, how am I going to interpret those emotions? Most likely as a failure. You told me that I should be fearless. You told me I need to calm down, but I'm not calming down, which means I'm doing something wrong. wrong. Yeah, exactly. And now I'm standing in the middle of the red circle. Where's my attention on the discomfort. It's like, why am I feeling this? How do I make it stop? I should be fearless right now, but I'm not fearless. Uh Uh-oh. Okay. So that's one approach. And then maybe the second approach would be someone comes up to you and says, 
Most people feel a bit nervous before a big talk like this. That's human. It's expected. It's normal. It's a sign that you care and it's your body getting ready for the challenge. You go out, you're standing in the same red circle, feeling the same as me, but because someone gave you permission to be nervous, you can accept the fact that these nerves are there, but then turn your attention to the task at hand, not fighting this losing battle of trying to stop being nervous and stop feeling our emotions. And so, yes, this was a thought experiment, but there are a lot of studies that do exactly that. Comparing these strategies of suppressing tough emotions with accepting and reappraising them. And time and time again, you see when you learn to accept and reappraise and understand the tough emotion, you get better at dealing with it versus trying to suppress and deny and get rid of it. I've been really lucky. Like I probably interviewed the five best researchers in the world on that topic. And study after study says the same thing. It's like we don't actually have much control over exactly how we feel in every moment of our lives. But what we can control is how we interpret those emotions. And that's sort of how you take the the power back. And so if we bring this back to learning and just bring this back to the workplace, it's look, feeling weird before asking a question or feeling weird before a job interview or feeling weird when we're challenged with like having to learn something big and new, like a new strategy within the group. That doesn't mean we're doing something wrong and it doesn't mean we're not ready. That's the human response to things that stretch us out of the comfort zone. So it's like, this is, it's called a comfort zone for a reason. If you're stretched out of it, it's not comfortable. (laughs) (laughs) And we have to help people understand that feeling weird doesn't mean you're on the wrong path more times than not, especially when we're talking about learning, that's a sign that you're being stretched. And once we understand that we get better at dealing with it easy to say hard to do but it's one of the it's one of the topics that's helped me the most and it's not even close so what the science says about maybe changing the way we think and talk about our tough emotions when it comes to learning okay well then that's all we need to talk about today because you've just (laughs) given all of our listeners permission to do what we try to teach which is so powerful the way you said it and the and i love the centering on the noticing, first of all, right? Because I have to be able to Mm -hmm. notice that I'm uncomfortable. And then I have to be able Mm -hmm. to accept that that is actually okay, normal and anticipated. Mm -hmm. Um, But Mm -hmm. I what I see happen in the world of work so often, Trevor, is that, you know, we are in a we are in an emotional denying culture when we're in the workplace, Mm -hmm. usually, you know, as long as I've been in this work, and way before that, really, since the Industrial Revolution, we've had this sort of message about the workplace, it was like emotion has no place at work. Yep. And people say this all the time, like I have to divide my personal life and my work life. I can't mm-hmm. show emotion at work. I can't I can't feel anything intensely. And so what happens is they do exactly what you just described so beautifully. They're basically on the dot on the TED stage, which I've been there. It's not that fun. Mm-hmm. And they <laughs> will do anything to not feel that thing, you know, as yeah. opposed to being like, well, no, actually, this is hard. This is, you know, my boss did just take away my key project, or I am trying to ask for a raise and it's really difficult, or I have feedback for a peer about something that's very uncomfortable. Being able to to yep. go through, we sometimes say the only way through is through. Mm-hmm. Like I've like, got to be able to if, notice, name, and and feel that thing. It's if the goal is to not feel. There's a lot of ways that you can pursue that. Don't do the thing. Right. <laughs> so like, that's the right. most common. It's like, oh, that made me feel weird. I better not do I that. I don't want to go. Or, I don't want to be on the job. The, right? the thought of this makes me feel weird. So I avoid it. You can try to numb it 
you can try to deny it. You can try to suppress it. And like all of these create more problems of their own. And so like what we tell people is, look, you do not need to be fearless. That's not the goal that we're chasing. The goal is we don't want fear making our decisions when we're trying to learn. And you do that not by denying it and suppressing it. You do that by understanding and accepting that. Like I, and, and like I said, we're talking about learning and development here. We're not talking about being an actual danger. Um, but in a learning situation, more times than not, our emotions are there, but it's not a sign that we're in danger. It's a sign that we're being challenged and stretched. And if it's a learning situation more times than not, that's probably a good thing. Um, if the goal is to grow. And so helping people just understand that I think is huge. Well, yeah. And what you just described so beautifully is that as we go through the learning moment or the learning process, our emotions change, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, move, they, 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 they get flushed through our body. They're a physiological response. So they, they don't last very long. Yeah. You know, usually we can let them move through our body and then we, we can be present, you know, for what's happening, which, um, which is maybe part of what happens when we learn. So, I love that. And, and so here's a question for you. I want to, I want to shift off leadership for a minute because the other piece that I'm noticing in teams around the land and organizations around the land is that what, you know, I sometimes say that what brings organizations to their knees is not their strategy. It's the very messy people dynamics that go on in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And of course Mm -hmm. the central one is usually the leaders and the leader role and how they're showing up to create vibrant cultures that are sturdy you know with with Mm -hmm. their teams but the other thing that happens is that teams break down we get into gossip and triangulation and teams don't support each other learning and you know amy epinson talks about the need for psychological safety and social capital and how how we have Mm -hmm. to how we have to build ways to have teams handle hard things and to move through them with grace you work a lot with teams and Mm -hmm. I'm curious about what do you think is the single most important, and I know this is probably going to be hard to pick, but what must teams do when they're trying to learn together? I think you could make a strong argument that Amy's work around psychological safety is sort of like square one, yeah, because totally. if it's like, if you want to ruin the learning and development of a group, remove the safety. So like, if that's gone, then what are we even talking about? Like nothing else works. And so like, I think that and understanding growth mindset are a really, really, really important like first step. And you don't need to overcomplicate either one of those things. And I see some people doing this with growth mindset. It's like growth mindset is simple. It's the belief that that, that change is possible. I believe I can change. Right. And that is at the heart of most changes. Like I said, if that's gone, like it doesn't really matter how convincing I am uh, talking about a particular skill. If you don't think you can build it, you're not going to practice it. You won't build it. And then the the safety piece is just like, look, we just spent 20 minutes talking about the fact that learning can be uncomfortable and it's going to involve struggle. It's like, well, if I don't feel safe, I'm not going to do those things. If I don't feel safe, I won't engage in the behaviors that are required to build a skill. And and actually, Amy and I are going to put out a huge video on psychological safety. We're like, we're building it right now. And uh, I think it's going to be really cool, but sort of the, the place that I've landed with that is 
the dynamic of the individual and the leaders within a group and how each one can impact the safety where it's not all on the leaders and it's not all in the individual. And yes. I'm sure you see this where sometimes we put all the, the responsibility on the shoulders of the leaders. It's like, you have to do this or nothing can like actually work. And then other times it's like all on the individual. And with the topic like safety, it's like, it's a team effort, which is as a leader, there's all sorts of things I can do to start to implement this into the environment. But if you look into Amy's research, you see one of the best ways to build safety is through modeling and action. So it's like one courageous act creates an environment where it's safer for others to do the same. So uh, like the easiest example would be uh, I did like a, a five hour training with 300 teachers from Chicago. And at the end of the workshop, I asked if anyone had a question. There's 300 educators in the room. Does anyone have a question? Nobody raised their hand. Then one person raised their hand. And what happens next? 30 people raise their hand. And so this seems so small, but this is human nature. And this is like a lot of what you and I think about and study happening right before our eyes, which is one brave person created a safer environment for other people to be brave. And the key is that wasn't necessarily the superintendent of the school district that asked the first question. It was just someone in the room. And she made it a little bit safer for more people to ask questions. And so this, this idea of we want safety, but you can achieve it through action and modeling. Those two things work together. So like taking action builds some safety, but safety encourages action. So now through the individual, the environment gets a little bit better. And like, that's, I think, building a good learning environment from the ground up. Now that doesn't take the responsibility away from the leaders. Like we want them engaging in action and modeling these behaviors as well. It's uh, right, absolutely. Like we all play a role in it is I guess what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like Pat Lencioni talks about the leader goes first, you know, and what really struck me as you were talking and I can't wait to see the resource you and Amy are putting out is that, you know, the missing ingredient, which you didn't say these words, but I know it's what you meant is vulnerability right? That we, yeah. in order to, in order for that one person, that one educator to ask a question, they have to be willing to step into yes. that discomfort of uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure, right? And when somebody right. does that, we're drawn to it, like a moth to yes. the flame, you know, we want to copy it. We're like, oh, and the other thing that I'm struck with what you're saying, Trevor, is that, and I think about this a lot in the work that I do in organizations is that, and part of why I named my second book, Brave space workplace rather than mm -hmm. safe space workplace, right? Is because right. I actually don't believe we can guarantee safety. Yep. I think everything we do that's hard has some risk to it. And I, I was reminded um, of, as you were talking, I was thinking about one of the hardest things I ever learned way back in the day when I was a wilderness guide, which was how to repel mm. off a very, you know, a very steep rock face where you have to go over the edge, you know, <laughs> and I did not want to learn how to repel. I was terrified at the top. And my colleague who was trying to teach me was doing some of the things you suggested, like center yourself, be brave. And I was like, you know, F that, like, I'm not going to be brave. It's 180 degrees down. You know, it's like, this right. is going to be horrible. Just the corner, like the corner was hard. And what I realized was that I didn't, my body was telling me exactly what it should, which is like, this is not what bodies are meant to do. And there is real right. risk. So until I understood how the risk was being mitigated, which mm -hmm. I knew, I was smart enough to know that I couldn't absolutely guarantee that I wasn't going to fall to my death because mm -hmm. there's no 
something that can happen in that kind of environment. But I was reasonably assured that the real risk was much lower than the perceived risk, which allowed sure. me to be able to say, yeah, this this could have some risk, but actually you're okay. But you're, but the, the thing that's going to make the difference is, are you willing to step over the edge, Mo? Like, are that's you huge. willing to do that? That's the uncertainty risk and emotional exposure. And of course, as soon as I did, and this is what happens like in situations such as you just described, is as soon as someone takes a move, it becomes obvious to all like, oh, this is actually yeah. a risk that's potentially worth doing. 100%. And that's why I think psychological safety is good. Spending a lot of time thinking and talking about that is really important. But you also have to have conversations like you and I had 15 minutes ago about the individual discomfort and uncertainty. Because right. it's like, like, I think about this a lot that, okay, a wedding dance floor is a technically very safe environment. It's my friends and family. Everyone has drinks in them. No one really cares. I'm not going to be punished or kicked out of the wedding if I'm not good at dancing. But so it's a really, really safe environment. But there's a lot of times where we still won't dance. And that's like, that's an individual thing. That's a between my ears battle that I have to figure out a way to win. So even if the environment is effective and supportive, and full of safety, that doesn't guarantee action. It's like, right. we kind of have to understand some some stuff right here between our ears, ourself. And going back to what you were saying before, believing in our capacity to prevail, you know, um, and yeah. also to rise, like if it doesn't work out, to to find a way to, you know, push past that. So yes. I, I love it, I love it. This is such good stuff, it's so powerful. And so I'm curious about something, because you work with people of all ages, as do I. And I was just reading an article this weekend in the New York Times about the Generation Z, you know, the the 20 something that are <laughs> in the workforce right now. And we know that for Generation Z and also millennials, there's been a lot of stuff made up about the motivations of younger generations, how they work, why they work, et cetera. And this particular article was about what Generation Z is looking for in terms of purpose. You know, which I talk about in my book, Fit Matters, How to Love Your Job. And, you know, it's, it's a key motivator for all of us. But I'm curious, when it comes to learning, what are you seeing as the differences, if any, Trevor, between the generations that are learning the thing? Like, are we learning differently based on the generation that we come from? Or, or are we all learning the same way it just is manifesting itself? I think a pattern you recognize is maybe younger people are more open to learning, mm. but that's not because the older generation is doing something wrong. It's because there's all sorts of stories and perceptions in society about age and learning. So like yeah. I interviewed this neuroscience uh, neuroscientist named Michael Merzenich. And so in the world of neuroscience, he's an absolute legend. And he was one of the first to research what they call neuroplasticity, which is this, mm. it's not even an idea. It's a fact that when we learn our brains, like physically change during this process. And during the interview that I did with Dr. Merzenich, like he looks right into the camera and he says, our research shows for a fact that a healthy brain remains plastic throughout our lives. Yay. And it's so important to understand that. So like we can change our brain and we can build new skills regardless of our age. Now we have to be accurate with what we're saying. Like once you're above the age of like 18 to 24, you have to be more intentional with your actions and intentional with your learning to change the brain, but it absolutely can happen. And that's not me trying to like hype up the listeners. That's what 
literally decades of research on the brain and learning shows. And so like that flies right in the face of a lot of perceptions in society about like, oh, can't teach an old dog new tricks or once I'm a certain age, I can't learn. And I think knocking that out is an important first step. And that kind of aligns perfectly with like growth mindset stuff, same ballpark, but like, that's a huge piece of this. And I I would say that's probably maybe the biggest reason that younger people are more open to learning is like, we still think we can. (laughs) And so like helping other people realize that is going to like be a good idea. (laughs) Well, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I appreciate that you said that because just this morning I was having this experience. My team is trying to learn a new, a new system called Notion. Mm -hmm. And it's our it's project. Amazing. Notion rules. Do you guys use Notion? Yeah. Oh I just gosh. started two weeks ago. It's the best. Oh my God. You're giving us hope. Because <laughs> we've been at it now for like a year and a half. And we actually hired an awesome company called Rad Reads to help us build our databases because they were not really built the right mm-hmm. way. But I'm mm-hmm. the biggest like block in my company's success around this, like most CEOs, mm-hmm. because if I'm not using it, then nobody's gonna use it because it's supposed to drive, you know, all of our work. And so this weekend sure. I was like, Mo, get in Notion. Like get in there. Mm-hmm figured out. And here's what I noticed that ties to what you're saying. My first thought was I'm too old because I'm 60 years old. I'm like, this is a new way of thinking. I can't Mm -hmm. do it. And then I I told myself, okay, it's, this is just uncomfortable. Mo. like what is happening? That's uncomfortable. You know, you're not too old. Your brain can learn this. Then I realized that I had a tremendous, and this has been true for me with notion. Like I was super, I get super afraid that I'm going to break it. I'm going to set it up wrong. You know, and then I was remembering one of my colleagues, Cameron, who's always saying to me, like, you can't break notion like that. You're, you know, no matter what you do, like we yeah. can fix it with where you organize it. And right. so that was really helpful. But I think the word you're using and what you heard from that excellent colleague, Dr. Merzenich, about, you know, the brain being plastic is it really required a, a growth mindset for me to keep telling myself over the course of several hours, like, you know, this is uncomfortable because you're learning something new. Mm-hmm. you're going to get better at it. And it was kind of a hard day. But then today yeah. I went back into the work that I did yesterday and I was like, you know what? I can see that I'm learning. I can tell it's not perfect, but I feel a lot more energized about trying to use that system for the rest of the week. So like if if we just played what you just said on loop for an hour, this would be a great <laughs> podcast because it's like, that's my six hour workshop in a nutshell. So we say, <laughs> we want people to learn more stuff, spend more time learning. How do you do that? A big part is convincing them that they can. And so how do you do that? One, you can talk about the brain is plastic. Two, having some conversations about like, look, everyone listening to this right now is really, really good at lots of things. Like if we pause the the podcast, everyone listening could list hundreds of things that they're good at, good at. So that means with all the listeners right now, if we were all in one room, we could identify thousands of things that we're all good at. Some of those things are going to be big and some will be small and some are funny, some are are serious. And all thousand of those things have two things in common. Once upon a time, you weren't as good at that thing as you are now. And two, that was changed through practice and experience. And that means you learned that thing. You built that skill. And that seems like a simple exercise, but it's actually powerful because The truth is we're learning all the time, like every week, every month, every year, we're growing so much, but sometimes we don't realize it. And when you take a step back and like look backwards and give ourselves the credit we deserve for like all of the learning that we're doing all the time, right? that's, that's a really good way to build up a more authentic growth mindset. It's like evidence. 
I believe I can grow because I'm doing it all the time. And then that last piece is the key. One of the best ways to help build the growth mindset is going through the learning process itself. Even if it's small, even if it's like maybe limited progress, just I couldn't do this last week and now I can is one of the best things. Like that's creating real momentum. It's like an earned win. And then from that, we can like start to build an authentic growth mindset, which fuels a bit more action. And so maybe my favorite thing that one of the schools that I work with has ever done, it was like a middle school and they wanted to like implement a lot of like the message. And they came up with this idea called the anti-talent show. So like all of the teachers and the students at the middle school had to pick something they couldn't do. And then they get to practice it for two weeks and then they hold the anti-talent show. So some people like learn to like juggle or ride skateboards, whatever. And at the end of two weeks of quote, nobody masters their skill, but they could all do it. And what a brilliant project because it's like concrete and tangible. They didn't just tell these students like, Hey, you should believe that you can learn. No, they set up a scenario where it's like, wow, two weeks ago, I couldn't juggle. Now I can juggle. And that was changed through action. And so you see in going through the learning process, now they're primed for a conversation on growth mindset. It's like, because of the evidence, because of the action and the growth that you just saw, now I'm starting to build more of a belief in my capacity to change. And like, I know that was just a long-winded summary of what you said in like 30 seconds uh, (laughs) in like learning notion, but it's like, those are some like core strategies that can help everybody listening get better at learning. I, I really do believe that. I just took you through my personal hurt locker. <laughs> That's all I did. I said, Trevor, come on in to my personal house of pain, right? Because that is kind of what it feels like, you know, when you're learning yeah. something new. It does, it feels like really uncomfortable. And I love the anti-talent show. That's awesome. And I think for mm-hmm. leaders, what I see with people leading people is that oftentimes what actually is interfering is that they do have, they have a mindset gap, which is that they're not sure they can do what they need to do to be a good leader, but they also feel that they should already know. So they feel at a deficit because they expect themselves to already be. And that's like me going into notion, like I already should be using it at this level, which is like, why would you expect that you should already be using it at that level? You haven't actually been through the learning process with it. So I think we have Mm -hmm. to get rid of that barrier too, of like what I think, where I think I should, you know, the infamous yep. shoulds. Now we're running out of time, but I do have one more quick question for you. Mm-hmm. A lot of our listeners, you know, we work in a lot of sectors, business, <clears throat> education, healthcare, and education and healthcare in particular as two sectors are just on fire right now. I mean, COVID-19, what's happened with schools from the superintendents down to the very front line, what's happening in healthcare. I feel like not a day goes by Trevor that I'm not talking with leaders in those systems who are like, how do I continue to help myself and my system grow and learn when the house is on fire. Yeah. And I'm, and also I'm burned out or my people are burned out. Yeah. I think about this a lot. And like during our workshops, like some of the groups I'm working with are in the same boat. It's like, yo, you're sitting here telling us we need to spend more time learning and we're freaking drowning. (laughs) So it's like, it's like a weird timing for a message like this, but (laughs) what, what I realized is like, if you look into the science of, of skill development, it's like, honestly, the best type of practice, if you want to get good at something, the more like realistic and like, this is like a sports term, but the more like game, like the practices, the better. Mm. And so oftentimes like 
the way we practice is like entirely different than the context in which we're going to use this skill. And so like bringing those things together is smart. Mm. But what I realized in looking into this, this research is like, wait a second, that shows us actually a better application. So we go back to like, if I'm doing a corporate workshop and we're kind of towards the end where it's like, okay, what is a skill that you want to build for the next couple of weeks? More times than not, the skills that they identify do not require additional time because mm. they come up with skills like, I want to listen better. I want to give better feedback. I want to get better at receiving feedback, whatever. Mm. We get opportunities each and every day to practice those skills without adding more on our plate. Yeah. And so when you get into this learner mode, you realize it's like, oh, my day-to-day, the things that I'm already going to do are opportunities to get better at important skills. And when I simply frame them as opportunities, I'm going to get more from that. So like, just imagine going through the day and looking at every conversation is a small rep for me to get a little bit better at listening. And I'm going to treat this as an opportunity to grow. It's like that just changes what you get from the situation itself. Mm. Um, Like that's one piece that I think is really important for everyone listening to understand. It's like sometimes to get good at something, it does require a little extra time, but just kind of activating learner mode and taking advantage of the opportunities that are already there can help us like big time develop new skills and get better at the stuff that matters to us. Yeah, absolutely. How is it that I can practice this now? You know, I love that. I love, love, love that because so many of our listeners who are people leaders or not are already maxed out and then they get overwhelmed at the idea that they have to add. And so I love what you're saying. We try to say it too in our programs. It's like, no, do it in what you're already doing. You don't have to add it. It's like a different mm-hmm. way to do what you're doing. So that is so awesome. Oh my gosh, I could talk to you forever. This has been an enlivening conversation. I'm making notes of like what I'm going to do to increase and maintain my neuroplasticity. Um, <laughs> I love the implications for people in the workplace of, of learning that you're doing in the world, Trevor. And I'm sure that it's having a tremendous impact. So before I let you go, and we're going to have you back on because there's more to say here for sure. But <laughs> tell me a little bit about, tell our listeners where they can find you and how can we directly and best support you and the awesome work you're doing. If you go to thelearnerlab.com, that's my website. We have a lot of videos, uh, podcasts and articles there, but the project I'm the most proud of, we just launched it a few months ago and it's my audio book. It's free. And I think it's the best thing that we've made. And the reason I like it is because Instead of like, like if I was to write a book, I would cite a lot of experiments and a lot of researchers, but because it's an audio format, we invited them on. So like, instead of me explaining a study, you can hear from Michael Merznick or hear from Jeremy Jameson. It really came together well. Like I said, it's free and there's a big link to that on the website. And so if people are curious to like learn more about learning, like I said, I think that's one of the best things we made and it's on the website. Oh my gosh. Awesome. We will link directly to that. I'm going to get it myself today um, in the show notes and sounds like something you've put out that is just so awesome for the world. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your energy. No problem. um, And, and for all the good work you're doing in the realm of learning. I'm a huge fan. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks Trevor. 